Rework is a podcast by Basecamp. Basecamp is software that helps you organize the work you need to do, the work you want to do, and the people you're working with. Try it free at Basecamp.com. Welcome to Rework, a podcast about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Waylon Wong. And I'm Sean Hildner. Last week, you heard from Basecamp CEO Jason Fried about how he narrowed down a field of 1,400 candidates to find a new head of marketing, a position we've never had here before. On today's episode, our new coworker, Andy DiDerosi, sits down with Waylon to talk about the company he founded, the Detroit Bus Company, and what led him to apply for the marketing job here at Basecamp. My name is Andy DiDerosi. Uh, I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, and uh, I still live there. And I'm the head of marketing for Basecamp now, which is a funny thing to say. Congratulations. It's day three. Is that the first time you've said it out loud in that kind of formal way? Yes. How did it feel? It felt official. Yeah. It's such an official title. Like I think it could go on like a badge, like yeah. a brass badge. It's nice to be here. Oh, good. Well, it's nice to have you here. Yeah. And thanks for coming on. We're just, it's like day three of your tenure at base camp and we already have you in the studio with the headphones on in the hot seat. I kind of expected it though. Yeah. I, I figured this would happen. So I wanted to just hear your story and what you were up to right before you took this job and kind of what motivated the big switch. Yeah, for sure. Like I said, I was born and raised in Detroit. You know, public transit is really bad there. And uh, this was 2011 that there was a lot of, you know, newspaper articles and stuff about how public transit was just not going to move forward. Like the city and the suburbs weren't agreeing. And I was really frustrated about this. We're a city that's big enough. It should have it. Um, We have enough people that need it. We have a ton of folks who just can't afford a car. And so like people just can't get to jobs that exist. And that's that sort of problem where a government can solve it. And they just kind of refuse to make that connection. Like we've got 640,000 people in, in Detroit proper. And then, you know, the burbs are where all the fair enough jobs are, you know, light manufacturing and retail and, you know, service industry. Is a lot of this inequity and in public transit felt along racial lines? For sure. I mean, the city of Detroit, I think the last time I checked uh, is 84 like percent black. I think it's the blackest city in America by the numbers. And of course, our transit systems don't work together well. So there's one transit system for the city called DDOT. And then there's one transit system for the suburbs called SMART. And until recently, they didn't work together at all. You basically bought a fare for one, took the bus to the edge of the city, got off the bus, waited an hour or more for the next bus, and then you bought the next pass for the next bus, you know, and you you continued onward to the suburbs. It was like some kind of dystopian movie where these two very similar organizations driving like the same buses, taking the same people, like didn't work together. And it was purely because of politics. Yeah. Did the DDOT system even extend into all the neighborhoods it needed to go? No, no. The DDOT system is horribly underfunded, you know, even till to today. I mean, we're talking about 2011 when a lot of this came to, be, to bear. But even today, the Fed has a bunch of transit dollars available for us, but we don't have a funded regional transit authority in which to disperse those. And so it makes us just not eligible we've turned away so many dollars that we're supposed to have. And it's all just because of political inefficiency. So you saw a route and you're like, I need a bus that goes between the city and the suburbs reliably. Yeah. And you said, I'm going to buy a bus. How did you buy a bus? I identified that I wanted to run a bus and it was like a, a late night sort of like 
you know, just pissed off thing. It wasn't, there wasn't a plan. There wasn't structure. The buses were for sale in like a church weekly, like the sort of like mailer. And it was the local school system selling a bunch of buses that they didn't need anymore. The listing said like, here's these buses for sale. Uh, It's like three or four of them. Mail in your highest offer. And I had been selling industrial and restaurant equipment up into this point. And I just knew that wasn't going to work for them. I'm like, there's no way that people are like mailing in their offer. You know, they're going to be sitting on these buses. And I reached out and I said, uh, you know, initially I said, Hey, like I'll help you, you know, sell these buses. That's what I do. You know, you don't have to pay me anything up front. I'll just sell them for you and we can work out something like a consignment thing. Yeah. 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 And so I drove over there with some friends and, uh, we drove like four school buses back to my building. You know, I had a small warehouse. Um, what's it like to drive a school bus? It is shockingly easy. The nice thing is that you have this giant mirror above you that you can see everything behind you and it's all windows. And so you don't even really need to turn your head to like see what's going on behind you. The axle is in the middle. So the tail like kind of, you know, I say it wags like it when you turn the bus, the, the back of the bus comes way out, which, you know, could be dangerous. But it's it's really easy to pilot 18,000 pounds. Shockingly so. So you got the four buses. Yeah, I brought them over to the I brought the buses over to the building and, uh, you know, started to list them. And this is when I got into this transit conversation. I think I was out to dinner with some friends and we were talking about it. And we talked about the recent headline that this transit project that was supposed to happen was killed. And I was just like kind of in my brain thinking about like, I've got some buses back at the, at the place. So I came up with this plan for this route. It was really just like all inside my head because I, I just felt that like there had to be a better way. And maybe if I like made this, you know, this little demonstration happened, like it could bring some attention to the issue. And I had no plan for where it was going to go from there. And so I called the school system back and I said, Hey, what I'll do is I'll do the, I'll sell the three buses for you. Zero consignment because the consignment would be about this much money. And that's worth about one of these buses. It's funny that you can go so quickly from like an idea to like having something out in the world that it even surprises you before long, I had like had a bus company, you know, and I, and I don't want to like compress all of the complexity of getting it going. There was a lot of sundries in the way, you know, you have to have insurance, you have to have an, a state authority, you know, you have to like the state has to permit you to operate buses. So this first bus, did you drive it? So I went and got my commercial driver's license and I drove it a bunch but I was smart to get school bus drivers really early on. And I actually offered jobs to people from the Ferndale Public Schools to drive like nights and weekends, you know. And what were the hours of the route? Well, the first one I ran, I ran a lot of hours. So it was like, I think it was like noon until like midnight or 2 a.m., like Friday through Sunday. And you could pay five bucks and ride as much as you wanted. And of course, people loved it. Like it was super popular, especially on Saturdays. Uh, We had packed buses, you know, going between these cities. And this was through parts of Detroit and then nearby suburbs, you know, kind of like these pockets of where people were. So we actually used bars as our bus stops because they really worked well. They had bathrooms. A lot of them had like cheap food. And so you could use them as like a neighborhood nexus. You know, it's like kind of like what bars function as socially. So why not have them function as that from like a transit perspective? We like quickly shot to like 30 or 40,000 followers on Facebook. And it was before like the death of organic reach. Basically anything we put out, you know, right here's the route tonight. It would get like three or 400 likes compared to today when you try to build anything on Facebook. Like if you're not doing paid you don't get anywhere. Did people pay cash? People 
for the route paid mostly in cash. Uh, we had Square. Square was pretty early then too. And so I put a little, um, a little table, you know, in the bus, I like took out a seat and put like an iPad on a, I made a little table out of a pallet. And so people could walk up and like pay with the square, um, reader. We just used all of these cool internet things. Like we had GPS tracking really early. So you could see where your bus was on a map. And that seems so obvious now, but back then, like we had to take an old cell phone and like have it report up to a server and then have that like reproduce itself on a map as a dot and that was like really hard to do you know it wasn't that wasn't that easy so we'd we'd like email that link to all the people that signed up to ride that night you know people could buy tickets online we just just event right so you'd pay your five dollars online right although the population that you're trying to serve is going to be very cash-based right if you're talking about people getting out to jobs and stuff yeah so there's this like there's this kind of like simmering misconception that like the more low income someone is like the less likely they are to have technology or be banked. And that's a trend, but it's not absolute. So we would have plenty of people pay with cash. Like we had like a little uh, metal cash box on each bus and, you know, we'd like stuff the cash there and like tuck it into a little pocket on the bus. But you actually touched on something where our population who needed us most, like they would have credit cards, you know, or, or they would have cash. We would accept the cash. But what we got into is that like, Plenty of people would be like, I can't even afford the $5. Like the $5 is like too much for me to pay for this. You know, the public bus is like $1.50 each way. And even though it takes like two hours longer, like I'm going to take the public bus because like, you know, a couple bucks a day adds up over a month. It's kind of a mind blowing thing. You know, if you're of an income level where like you pretty regularly go to Starbucks, you don't think about the couple dollars. It's just like a tiny little vampire bat on your bank account. I mean, you just don't really think about it. Whereas like when you're budgeting like dollar to dollar, it's pretty big. We heard this over and over and over again that like we were self-selecting what's called riders of choice, like people who can pay for a slightly better service and they leave the public service and it like hurts local transit agencies. We wanted to serve people who could never afford even a dollar for a ride. You know, and that's kids. That's, you know, job seekers. That's elderly people. Like these are folks who are most vulnerable and you can't have any money be part of the concept or they're just like, I'm out. Like, sorry, you know, I can't, I can't do any of it. And I didn't want to build a business around trying to extract money from people who like, that's the most precious resource they have. So I'd rather sell like a high margin thing, like a tour or a wedding charter, and then use the extra money from that to provide free rides. We found that like weddings really liked our buses because we hand paint them. Um, They don't look like any other bus you've seen. They're, you know, hand painted by Detroit mural artists. And we found a lot of people wanted tours like uh, to see the city. And these are folks who have lived near the city for a long time and just haven't really explored it. They haven't gone into the history of it. And so we're making people who live in the suburbs like into like local tourists. Yeah. So that was that spark of idea where you thought, okay, we'll offer these higher value tours to people who can pay. And then that'll subsidize the social mission of providing um, rides to daycare and aftercare. We found that the like the biggest transit gap was kids in Detroit. They're the most vulnerable population because right now to get to school, they take the public bus, which is overcrowded. They can 
you know, only get yellow bus service if they're like K through five. Uh, they have to be within a certain distance of the school. If they're too close, they don't get it. If they're too far away, they don't get it. If they're too far away, they don't get they don't, it. If they're too far away, they don't get it. It's like a it's like a donut of service that's offered around the school. When winter comes and it starts to get dark at five thirty, so a lot of them just stop going to school. It actually, causes a ton of dropouts because. You think about walking, you know, two or three miles in the snow at, you know, 730 in the morning in, you know, a city with a very high crime rate. Like, no way. I'm just not going to go to school. And that's a perfectly reasonable response, unfortunately, um, that we've like made kids choose that or made their parents choose that. So we're a ride for ride model. It's like Tom's shoes. You know, you buy a tour ticket, um, you know, you use one of our, our buses for a wedding. We give kids free rides to school and after school programs. It's actually a 501c3 now, you know, and, and, and it used to be something we just did with our own buses to give kids these free rides. Um, but we're trying to grow it beyond just doing these rides as we can do it with our own money. We're trying to grow um, the ride services uh, into its own sort of organization that can, you know, have leadership and lifeblood beyond us, you know. Yeah. There's only so much you can do with, you know, a, a small company and a few buses. We also, for a little while there, like landed some grants, which seems like a wonderful thing. But when someone hands you a check for $183,000, which was our first, you know, sizable grant, your perspective on your organization and like how money exists, like changes whether you want it to or not. You start to steer your organization to try to get more of that because like it seems like the easiest way to provide your good, but there's like sort of like, dark issues attached to that. You've just made your organization like part of whoever gave you the money. You're kind of working for them now. The way they get their money, they have to, you know, make certain reporting things to their, you know, funders and show certain, you know, data points that are really sexy. Would you rather give out, you know, 600 bus rides in a school year or would you rather give out like 15,000 backpacks? And people almost always choose the backpack because you can put the backpack on a billboard, you know, and like you can show a photo of a kid with a backpack, whereas like a photo of a kid on a bus isn't like as gripping. And then the grant started trickling off. Um, so that's how you landed on the ride for ride model. Yeah. The ride for ride thing came up because, you know, you've seen a few companies do it and it's kind of become like in vogue where, you know, you buy a t-shirt and we'll give a t-shirt to someone else. The way we found it to work was we had the same buses. Like it wasn't like we were like, you know, just selling someone two of something and then giving one of them away. Like our cost is in holding these buses and keeping them insured and like housed and like paying for our office, you know, folks. If we use the buses for these for-profit things on nights and weekends, and then we gave the rides away during the week when kids need them most, like our costs don't go up that much. And so this is like sort of a virtuous cycle where people are more likely to use our nights and weekend services because they'd like to support the free rides. People won't buy a thing though if the base service or good itself is not something that they want. If your whole business is is based on the buy one, give one model, but the buy one thing sucks, you're not going to get anywhere because like people will just donate the money. So we first had to make sure like the service that we were offering was awesome. You know, so the buses are like hand painted. Like I said, um, they have music in them. Do the drivers play music when they are driving the kids around? Do the kids get to pick music? Yeah. 
to an extent. So we used to have it so like the kids got to pick whatever. <laughs> and then we got some really I can tell you're not a parent. <laughs> we got some really out there stuff, right? Right? They would like plug in the Spotify and have like the explicit version and we're like, no, 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 no. You know, Detroit's the home of Motown music. And so we started making some thumb drives and we would let the kids pick like what thumb drive they want to spin up and pop that in there and like let it rip. Baby shark. Baby on shark. Loop. Baby shark nonstop. Grandma shark, grandpa shark, <laughs> all the sharks. I can do the hand motions. Yeah. 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 We understand children. <laughs> this is like a kind of this like awkward uh, smash cut transition. But then why leave that all behind to come to our little operation here at Base Camp? The bus company, I'd started it in 2011. I've worked in it seven days a week since then. I have created a really great team. Like everybody there right now is definitely like the best version of the team we've ever had. You know, when I'm there seven days a week, you know, 10 hours a day, um, it's really hard for them to like grow beyond my ideas and concepts. It's really hard to let go when you grew something from like one school bus, you know? And so like for the next, I don't know, 10 years, I want to see what they do with it. Like, I want to see how it can grow beyond me. So when Jason emailed me about this role, about this, you know, head of marketing role, my brain didn't even consider it. It wasn't even like on the, on the radar, but like I knew that I wanted to do it because I'd followed Basecamp and 37 Signals like since way back in the day. You know, I used to work at Jalopnik. Uh, We used Campfire. We've worked actually at the bus company in Basecamp. Um, maybe like three or four years now, maybe a little bit more. And so like I followed 37 Signals in Basecamp for so long. And then this job opens up and I'm like, whoa, like I know exactly how to share this with other people because I do it all the time. And this sounds like an ad, but like I've evangelized for these products for so long that like I've got my pitch down pretty well. I can like, you know, steal a, a cocktail party conversation like pretty easily about like, hey, like, you ever heard about asynchronous working? I thought it was like the perfect fit. And did you mention that Jason had emailed you too? Yeah. So Jason had emailed me uh, this listing and, he, and the email was real short, but it's just said like, hey, uh, you know, we're hiring for this person. You'd be an absolutely perfect fit for it, but like you're probably too busy. So like to share it with anybody you think. And I'm, I really don't think he was like, you know, being coy about it. I think, I think he really was like, you know, Andy's got a lot of stuff on his plate. He's probably not looking for a job, but like he probably knows the person who could be good at this job. I, I sort of had uh, what what they call like the the whole body yes when you know when I really allowed myself to like consider the possibility of like changing my role at my company and then taking this job. Most of my like productive career life so far has been small organizations or projects that like I am like the last word. I, I would just hungry for a new kind of a new kind of setup where I can learn things that I can't learn you know, being the only voice. Um, and you know, Jason, you had like met him at a conference or something years ago. That's how he knew you. Yeah, I met Jason because um, he was speaking at the 99U conference with Adobe in New York. And I had gotten invited to speak at it for some reason. I still don't understand how or why they picked me, but I'm grateful they did. Uh, I got to follow Seth Godin, which is like, you know, my badge of honor that like Seth Godin opened for me. I actually felt like super sick prior to my talking just from anxiety. It was like a 25 minute presentation, which I'd never spoken that long. That's long. long. Yeah. 
And I, I did the cardinal sin of practicing a little, but not enough. <laughs> and so I had like a little bit of like knowing what's going on. It like had some structure around it and some framework, but I didn't have it memorized. So I gave the talk. I think it went pretty good, but like 10 steps off that stage, I threw up all over the place. <laughs> oh, mom spaghetti. <laughs> yeah. Straight up M&M. Yeah. Detroit represent in the, in the restroom. But you know, like you can actually see me turning pale in the thing. Um, <laughs> like I just lost all my color. Uh, but I did it. I finished the talk. And then afterward, you know, after, you know, cleaning up in my hotel room, I ran an adjacent at um, uh, like the post-conference mixer. Um, I just stayed in touch with him. You know, we like had a phone call a couple years after that, I think it was. And then, uh, what was it, like six months ago, he was in town for speaking at a small Giants conference. Oh, yeah, sure. Small, mm-hmm. Giants small Giants is like a really cool little mm-hmm. community. Um, so we did the buses for these, this conference. Jason saw the buses operating and, and all this. And, and he was like, Hey, are you, uh, are you here at the conference? Are you coming? And I had like completely forgotten that it was that day. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, man, totally. Like I'll be right there. And like, you know, threw some clothes on and ran out there. I caught him up on like what we'd been working on with the bus co and, you know, my projects and, uh, some of this other stuff in the nonprofit. And like, I think that's how maybe he got the idea that like, maybe I'd be a good fit for this. Cause at the end of the day, the Detroit bus company, you know, on paper is just a bunch of old school buses in like a, you know, financially failing Midwestern town. But when you look at like our story, which I think we tell really well, and you look at like what our mission is and like why we do what we do, then it becomes important. It's a bunch of people sort of rowing the same direction to try to make this funny, weird thing happen. I'm only guessing here, but if I could pull that off, then um, maybe I could tell some pretty good stories, you know, here at Basecamp. Yeah. Well, thanks for telling your story right now on the pod. (laughs) Yeah, you bet. Rework is produced by Waylon Wong and me, Sean Hildner. Our theme music is Baroquen by Design by Clip Art. You can find show notes for this episode at Rework.fm, and you can follow us on Twitter at Rework Podcast. Rework is a podcast by Basecamp. Basecamp puts everything you need to get work done in one place. It's the calm, organized way to manage projects, work with clients, and communicate company-wide. Sign up for free at Basecamp.com. Basecamp.com.